Hey, welcome to the Chess Experience. On this show, it's all about helping adult improvers. I want to make learning chess easier for you to navigate, and I also want you to have a more fun experience along the way. I'm your host, Daniel Lona, a fellow chess amateur. Let's get to it. This show is sponsored by Chess.com, the world's largest chess community. One of Chess.com's most popular features is called Game Review. This feature weaves together a lot of benefits in one post-game analysis. For example, you can see how accurately you played, whether you made any moves that were deemed brilliant or great, which makes me feel a lot better about my chess when I get one of those. And Game Review also offers a virtual coach that gives insights on every move. It'll also show you alternate lines that would have been better for you to help you understand how you can improve your game. So go on chess.com, play a game, and try out the game review. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm super excited for today's guest, Grandmaster Daniel King. Daniel has quickly become one of my favorite people in the chess world. His commentary on his YouTube channel, Power Play Chess, is really sharp and instructive, and he just has a way about him that's very enjoyable to listen to. For some brief background on Daniel, he started his commentating career in the early 90s, covering on live TV the World Chess Championship between Kasparov and Short. He has written over 15 educational chess books, and in recent years, he's created several chessable courses, including a course that's an adaptation of his famous book, How Good Is Your Chess?, In this interview, Daniel and I run the gamut on topics. We talk about his personal chess journey and his rise to Grandmaster, his commentating career from being on live TV to now running his popular Power Play Chess YouTube channel, some insights on playing the Sicilian, and his love for music. Daniel and I finish the interview with a format of some rapid-fire chess questions that mimics his 99-second segment on his own YouTube channel. I think you'll really enjoy listening to Daniel King. Here's the interview. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Uh, the only thing is, I hope I don't uh, kind of nod off or, or start speaking a bit in a slurred <laughs> way because I got up very early this morning and had a swim. And I was, I was intending going for, for a siesta this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> before before we had this interview but uh yeah so i'm feeling you know what time is it now it's just after 6 p.m in london and yeah i missed the siesta somehow ah yeah well i appreciate you skipping the uh early evening nap in order to uh to do the show it's much appreciated um yeah daniel uh i mean you're you have such an amazing career that you're going to be one of those guests that it's difficult for me to ask all the questions I would want to ask in just a, a one hour period, but we'll try to cover as much as we can and all the highlights of, of everything you're doing. So well, uh, very, yeah, just very kind of you to say amazing. <laughs> a bit random actually, but anyway. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I think, uh, I think most people listening will probably share my perspective on that and are excited to hear about all of your chess accomplishments in different areas within the realm of chess. But before we actually dive into chess, I just had sort of one question for you that's uh, not directly about that. But uh, I'm a huge music fan myself. And, you know, I see the guitar in the back of your videos in the in the back uh, behind you in all of your videos. You know, I've heard you talk a little bit about it here. There's sort of references, but I haven't gotten like this story. So what's, um, uh, what's your interest in music? Like, obviously, I think you you play. So yeah, if you could just talk a little bit about that. 
Well, you know, I've always loved music. Um, it's in the family, lots of lots of uh, you know, lots of my family play, so I couldn't escape it basically. Um, but you know, just from childhood, been uh, immersed in music, and uh, so you know, grew up playing the violin. Um, you know, very dutifully playing, <laughs> you know, because I listened to a lot of classical music. I listened to all kinds of music when I was growing up. Um, classical, uh, jazz, uh, rock, blues, um, you know, it's all, it's all there. Um, so I played the violin when I was a kid. Uh, but then, yeah, teenage years struck and, and the violin got dumped. <laughs> I picked up the good old guitar and I discovered rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Nice. So, uh, Do you still play now? Yeah, I play I play a bit of guitar, but actually, again, kind of by accident, I switched to the bass. There was a band that needed a bass player. or You know, I was always a madly guitar player, um, mm. but a band you know needed a bass player and so i picked up a bass and did a gig and i thought wow this is fun so actually my main instrument at the moment is is well the electric bass and also the double bass because i mean i really enjoy playing jazz um you know i played with a jazz trio for a, quite a few years and i played in a big band doing kind of Sinatra stuff and show tunes and you know, like 20, <laughs> 25 of us. And I played double bass in that. Um, so yeah, that's actually double bass and electric bass are my main instruments at the moment. And yeah, I play at the moment with a couple of bands. Um, before lockdown, I was playing with about five different bands. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, but then kind of, yeah, everything calmed down. Ah, so, so you're yeah. still pretty. You've been active with it even even recently. That's very cool. Yeah, I did a gig uh, last week actually, which was really lovely. I was I've started playing with a with a tango band. Would you believe? <laughs> Where that came from. Um, that's that's the great thing about playing double bass. That, ah, that's really cool. You know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It, it fits in with all kinds of bands. Um, so this band has. A violin, an accordion, piano, mandolin, and we play tango music. That's great fun. Played played at a party. That's kind of background music, which is nice. Um, really good fun. <laughs> that's awesome. That's uh, a lot more active uh, even currently than I expected you to be. Uh, that's very cool, though. Yeah, like I said, I'm a huge music fan, so I love hearing that. Uh, I feel like I could spend the next 20 minutes or even the whole podcast talking about music with you too. I'd be but... delighted to. I'd be delighted to, actually. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I was, awesome. I'm no. going off, off track. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's uh, Obviously, we're, we're two music fans, so it'd be easy for us to, to dive into that. But yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll bring it back to chess for now. And I'd like to um, start at the beginning in talking about your, your chess life. So did you grow up in a chess family? And if not, what sparked your enthusiasm for chess? Um, I learned from my mum and dad, well, principally my dad, but um, when I was about five years old, um, my mum and dad were playing on a Sunday afternoon, not a very regular occurrence. And I just was sort of thought this is really strange, you know, these beautiful little pieces. Um, but they weren't chess players at all. I mean, I don't know why they were playing, but anyway. They, they did a fantastic job of dangling a carrot in front of me and my brother <laughs> um, because soon we were sort of begging 
to be, uh, you know, taught how to play. Um, so yeah, learn from there. And I mean, I think so, but they weren't chess players at all. Uh, but the great thing was that my brother was taught at the same time, and yeah, we were had classics, you know, sibling rivalry um, in, in everything we did. <laughs> um, so we spurred each other on, really. Um, was your brother older than you? Yeah, he was. the The age gap between us is less than two years, so that's close enough uh, to have fairly serious competition. And only one school year, so we were yeah we always played together and and yeah as I said with that spurred each other on. I see. So how much of it was just like your own excitement? I mean, you're getting into chess as a kid uh, over the early years in the beginning for you. How much of it was you know the the drive for competition with your brother versus just your own love of the game? Um, at first, I wasn't really gripped by it. It was more can I beat my brother? And when, <laughs> and when I couldn't, then I kind of crashed and just thought, oh, it's not for me. And my my lovely dad could see me, you know, in tears and um, help me a little bit. Um, and I think he got a book out of the library and showed me a few things. And Actually, we were very, very lucky that the time that we were learning chess was the time of the the Fischer-Spassky boom in 1972. Mm. That came a little bit after we learned. Um, but even before then, somehow there was excitement. And pure coincidence, near us, there was a very, very good junior chess club, really thriving. Um and we were taken along there with, you know, one of those kind of inspirational teachers who did it just for the love of it. And in this small room, in this kind of community hall, um, there were like 60 kids chucking chess pieces at each other for an hour on a Friday afternoon, Friday evening. And it was absolute bedlam. I mean, really a small room and 60 kids in there. It was chaos, but it was such good fun. And that's where probably I got bitten by the bug because as soon as I started winning some games, then, you know, I I just got really gripped by it and, you know, ended up winning the junior competition. And from then on, I was completely gripped, actually. So it was more success than, you know, oh, my, my intrinsic love of the game. (laughs) <laughs> it was just winning basically i like to win <laughs> <laughs> so you said you won the junior competition how long after you started playing chess was that like, was that a couple of years later or well i learned the moves at five and that was probably i don't know probably i was eight or nine something like that so i mean it was it was a slow burn at first because i th- i think I mean, I listen, I can't remember, but, you know, we didn't go to the chess club immediately. I probably went to the chess club when I was perhaps eight or nine years old. Um, and perhaps I had, you know, one season there where I did okay. And then the next season, you know, I had some success. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, to become a title player from there on, there's a point where you start taking the chess like really seriously. You're pretty diligent about studying and maybe getting a coach. Um, do you remember around at what point that happened for you where, you know, it was 
kind of like locked into to improving regularly and things like that? That wasn't really the case with me at all. Hmm. It was unsystematic. Um, but what really helped was that junior chess club where there was fierce competition. And uh, I remember every year there was um, an English chess master that came to give a simultaneous display. And he was also a sort of junior organizer within London, a chap called Leonard Barden, who was a former, he is, he's still alive, former um, British champion. And he kind of spotted me <laughs> and, you know, we started to learn about junior tournaments in London. So suddenly there was the London Junior Championship. So uh, not just me, but a few of us, the, the, the more, you know, talented, talented players in the chess club would go up to London and, um, you know, we live out in the suburbs so we go into central London and play these these junior tournaments. Um, and that's when you realize, oh, okay, I might have been, you know, top of the class <laughs> in my, my little, uh, you know, suburb. Uh, but suddenly you realize, wow, there is really tough competition. And, uh, you know, that was fantastic. Uh, and, yeah, that was part of the 1972 Fischer-Spassky boom where there was suddenly – so many tournaments, such a lot of interest, and not just junior tournaments, but weekend tournaments in London. And yeah, when you have a a very big population and a massive interest, then that really helps. You know, if you if you're stuck out in in the country, it was it wasn't as easy. But yeah, I, I mean, I was from that respect. In that respect, I was very lucky to live in London. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So even through your teenage years, then you're saying because you said your your journey to becoming a title player wasn't very systematic. So even through your teen years, it was more just your passion for the game and just participating in it. Did you have a coach? Um, I mean, for the first few years, no, didn't have a coach. But I was invited to these junior tournaments and and where there was some coaching. I think, I can't remember exactly how old it was, perhaps 12 or 13, we were put in touch with a strong player called Nigel Pover, who subsequently became an international master. And at that point, he was playing a lot of chess, trying to sort of make it as a professional player. But basically, he took on students, and there were a few of us, uh, well, the, the same same bunch who played in, you know, the, our local junior chess club. Um, he used to sort of take us for a, a Sunday afternoon, about five or six of us uh, for a session, you know, a couple of hours. So he was my first coach. And that was really important, actually, uh, because suddenly he kind of opened up a world uh, where, you know, he, he showed us New, new ideas, you know, ideas that were current in, you know, from top tournaments or, you know, new openings. And that was a real eye opener. Um, I mean, it probably helped that he was learning himself, you know, he was on that path to try to become an international master. So, you know, he was gathering lots of knowledge himself. And, you know, what he picked up, he was passing on to us. It was still pretty unsystematic. Very unsystematic. I mean, I can't say that 
Um, I had a regular study plan or anything like that. But just in the sense that he introduced us to new systems, new ideas, you know, showed us some end games. Uh, that was very important. Um, he also, I mean, one thing I remember very clearly was that somehow he understood how to attack. Um, and from the opening and what it meant to develop quickly in the opening. And that had never really hit home before. So that was very important. You know, the concept of rapid development, you know, not messing around, that, that every move counts. Um, but I would say, and, and then I, you know, I, of course he showed us stuff, but I was studying for myself as well, but it, it was unsystematic. So I was studying openings, looking at games collections. You know, I, Fisher's 60 Memorable Games was important. Um, I bought uh, Alekin's Best Games as well. Um, but I think it was mainly fierce competition. You know, I was playing regularly in weekend tournaments mm. and picking up ideas from stronger players. I also joined the chess club where, where Nigel was uh, very active was the strongest player there, but he, you know, he was a sort of great organizer as well. Um, and that helped a great deal. Streatham, Streatham and Brixton chess club, um, a great, great chess club in the 1970s. Well, it's a great chess club now. Um, but in the 1970s, it was, there was sort of lots of activity. So it was that thing of lots of playing and contact with stronger players. And suddenly you became sort of by osmosis, you picked mm. up new ideas. And, and you know, for example, in Stratton and Brixton Chess Club, there were certain openings that were really current and very popular. At that time, uh, the Sicilian Sveshnikov was, in the 1970s, was very, very hot. That was a completely new idea being introduced by Yevgeny Sveshnikov. And that was picked up by Nigel and a lot of players in, in Streatham. So, you know, I ended up playing that. That's just one example of an opening that, you know, somehow by osmosis, <laughs> I started <laughs> playing um, and then started studying. And, you know, at that age, you know, in my early teens, um, I, you know, your memory is just fantastic. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. so I could just regurgitate a lot of lines. Um and, but there was lots of trial and error, you know, lost a lot of games, won a lot of games, but yeah, trial and error. I wouldn't say, you know, that's how I learned, not by sort of systematic studying. Yeah. You know, uh, Daniel, I had a question for you because a lot of the people listening are, you know, adult club players and we become very, uh, can, can become very rating obsessed. Yeah. And as it relates to your own journey, I'm curious about that because like you said, it wasn't systematic. It sounded like a combination of a lot of competition and like you said, the um, access and connection to strong players. And what I'm getting from how you describe this is it doesn't sound like you were particularly rating obsessed, but I'm curious about that. Let me know if I'm wrong. <laughs> um, isn't everyone rating obsessed? <laughs> that's fair, that's fair. <laughs> you know I, I can i can you know i can, I can look back with rose tinted glasses and say oh of course not you know i played for the love of the game and 
<laughs> what a load of rubbish. Yeah, of course, everyone was rating obsessed. Particularly, you know, I mentioned this this junior organiser, this former British champion, Leonard Barden, who's still alive, still writing the, the Guardian chess. The Guardian is one of the big newspapers here in in the UK, and he still writes the chess column for the for the Guardian. And he's a superb journalist. But in those days, he was organising a lot of these junior tournaments. But he used to put up charts of top 10 juniors in England. And, you know, he'd have your, have your ratings there. Top 10 juniors in the world. And he'd obviously sort of picks up magazines from all over the world. And if he saw some strong player, he'd sort of estimate a, a rating. And boy, did that give you an incentive. So, you know, you turn up to a weekend tournament and they were his charts because, you know, he um, often estimated gradings because gradings only came out once a year in those days. So he would kind of have a live rating according to your latest weekend tournament and everyone else's. So he'd estimate your grade there. And if you saw you dropped a couple of places, you'd go, oh, disaster. So, yeah, those <laughs> ratings mattered. And, yeah. you know, he was one of the junior selectors. So it meant, you know, are you, you know, would you be selected to play for England juniors against whatever? Or would you get an invita invitation to, you know, some junior tournament uh, in London? So, yeah, it kind of mattered it for those kind of things and for your ego as well. It's, it's very visible, you know, when you have a chart there and everyone can see it. So that was tough, actually. But it helped yeah. a lot of us. You know, I came from a generation where um, a lot of us in that time, so there was Nigel Short, Julian Hodgson, William Watson, Joe Gallagher. I mean, I don't know if you know all these names. They're, you know, a different generation. But, yeah. you know, a lot of us became grandmasters. And there was only, you know, we were around about the same age. We were, you know, this was the Fischer-Spassky generation, basically. The competition helped us. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Around age 18 or 19, you earned the IM title. Yeah. And six years later, you earned the GM title. Mm. So I'm kind of curious about that period in between the two titles. What competitive aspirations did you have in chess during that part of your life? Was it primarily to earn the GM title or did you have other chess goals for yourself? So I left. So I finished school at the age of 18 and it's it's really quite traditional here in um, in the UK to take a gap year before you go to university. And so I finished school, was going to go to university, but I thought, okay, I'll take a gap year before going. And in that year, I'll play as much as possible and see how far I can get in, in the chess world. Well, within <laughs> I left the school left school in the summer. And within four months, I got the IM title. I think it was just such a relief at leaving school. Mm. <laughs> and uh, the problem is, you know, I had such quick success without any great study, just because I was playing and felt kind of liberated. Um, but yeah, basically, I thought, well, I'll just keep doing this because I'm traveling a lot. I loved traveling. I loved getting away from home. Um, I was playing chess, doing something I really loved. Love the travel. So, well, long story short, or short story long, um, I'm still on my gap year, basically. 
<laughs> I never quite made it to university. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, that, so I got the IM title very quickly. And I think the problem was because I got it so quickly, and that was really unexpected, that the Grandmaster title just seemed unattainable. That was just, I couldn't even conceive of getting the uh, grand, the Grandmaster title. So actually for the next few years, it was all a bit random. Basically, I was enjoying, um, how can I put it, the social aspect of um, playing in chess tournaments. I loved traveling abroad, loved traveling all over the world. Um, and I didn't really have a clear goal in mind. And I didn't have a chess coach either. In fact, you know, after those sort of early teenage years, so I had two or three years being coached um, irregularly by Nigel Pover, and, and I have to say I'm very grateful to him. Uh, I thought he was an excellent coach. But after that, I didn't have a chess coach. And actually, I think it, it would have been really beneficial if I'd had someone who just said, okay, let's have a little bit of structure to your, your <laughs> chess life. Because um, I didn't had, have that. And I I was really enjoying myself, actually. <laughs> had a fantastic time. <laughs> but uh, often to the detriment of uh, my chess career, I have to say. So what uh, what ultimately closed the gap for you to earning the GM title? I right. know you said that earlier it seemed uh, yeah. too difficult to obtain. At some point it must have come into focus and, and you you know closed the gap. A few, uh, yeah, a couple of things. So in, in the mid-80s, I was invited to play for a, a German club in the National League, the, the Bundesliga. And that made a massive difference because suddenly I felt the weight of responsibility of playing for a team. So then I started to study. And in Germany, everyone seemed to take chess far more seriously than in England. Um, they were much better versed in opening theory. You know, we had a few systems that we cobbled together, and but they would they took their opening theory very seriously. You know, in England, you'd sort of turn up and people would be playing all kinds of weird gambits that someone had, you know, suggested <laughs> on the Friday night down the pub. Um, in Germany, you know, they would have big thick books that, and they would read them <laughs> <laughs> and. And tried to play this stuff. So that was an eye-opener. Um, so that chess became much more serious when I started playing in Germany for, for a club. And that was fantastic for me. And so, well, my results improved. I mean, it, it's it's not a very complicated occasion. The more you put in, the more you get out. Right. And I became more serious about my chess. And, yeah... Then it became more realistic. And I also started playing in the Soviet Union as well. I started getting hmm. through the English, uh, through the British Chess Federation. Um, I, they used to get invitations to play in Soviet tournaments. And again, suddenly this was a level of chess and a chess culture, which I had never, ever appreciated. I mean, Soviet chess was, well, even just saying it now, you know, the, the Soviet chess school it just has a resonance to it. You know, you just think of all the greats. And so that was really something quite intimidating going there and playing 
these greats. You know, I, I played against Tal. I played, I, I, you know, I played some fantastic players. Um, and so the level of chess culture there was, again, just at another level. So all these experiences really helped me. And, I, you know, I got better. I, you know, got crushed a lot. <laughs> but, but little by little, I got better and better. And until, golly, when was my first Grandmaster Norm? Probably 88, something like that. And, yeah, then, yeah, it started to get very serious. And actually within a short space of time, um, I got the GM title. Once once I got the first one, it felt, oh, yeah, I can do this. And it just felt like a, a matter of matter of time before I got it, actually. But it was all, it was basically self-study, actually. And I wish, I mean, this is all said with hindsight, I wish that I'd had a coach to keep me on track, actually. Uh, and, and not just that, to sort of guide me in what study, but also those times when you kind of crash, because inevitably you do sometimes, uh, you have a bad tournament, and that was that's really tough when you're traveling around on your own. Yeah, found it found it really really very difficult. You know, when you're away from home, um, and yeah, not not so easy. You know, I think nowadays you you, know, you see a lot of the chess professionals they they have a second going around with them, or, or you know, someone that sorts out their laptop and their analysis or whatever. Um, <laughs> And that would have been fantastic. But even just to have someone that kind of had your back, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, I mean, the constant competition in chess spurs you to great heights, but it can also be really tough when things go wrong as well. Yeah, it does seem hard to overstate the helpfulness of having a coach. It's all really fascinating, Daniel. Uh, you know, like I said, I wish I had uh, so much more time to dive into a lot of these things. But you know, I know you, you achieved a lot, you know, that period after you earned the GM title mm. um, competitively. You know, there's highlights listed online, but I'm curious to know what you would say would be one or two of the most proudest moments of your competitive career, let's say, in your GM phase of your career. Yeah, um, there are a couple of, uh, couple of uh, f- yeah, events that, that sort of stand out. One was in 1990. When I played, I was playing for the English team, and there was um, a, a four-cornered um, team event in Iceland. So it's great to visit Iceland, anyway. Um, so a team from England, a team from the USA, a team from from the Soviet Union, and a team from the Nordic countries, and we played each other twice. And ten board match and in one of the matches against the Soviet Union England beat the Soviet Union and I think that was the only time that England had ever beaten the Soviet Union in a um, yeah kind of full t- team event and I won my game in that match beat Dolmatov who at that time was you know one of the um, you know r- rising stars in Soviet chess that yeah. That was a fantastic feeling because, you know, I know it's hard to imagine now, but, you know, everyone just had such respect for the Soviet school of chess and the, and the chess culture there. And, and to be part of a team that beat them in a match was such a feeling. Um, 
game I played was not a great game. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to look back at that game and think, yeah, I played really well. I didn't play very well, but somehow I scraped it and pulled it through. And I've always loved playing team chess, actually, probably for the the reasons that, uh, I mean, one, you know, reasons uh, I I mentioned earlier that, you know, when you're playing individually, you get great highs, but great lows. When you're playing in a team, you have the support of your teammates. if If you've got great team spirit, it makes a massive difference. So I've always loved playing team chess, actually. So yeah, that's an absolute highlight. Um, just loved it. Um, and the other, I mean, an individual event that stands out was winning. There was an open tournament in Calcutta in 1992. Um, strong, very strong tournament. And I came first there. And along the way, I beat Vichy Anand. Now, Vichy in 92 was already fairly strong. He'd just come <laughs> back from Reggio Emilia tournament in Italy where he'd beaten Kasparov. Previous year, he was already, he'd already played in the candidates. So, you know, to beat Vichy on his home turf in India was an absolute thrill. Um, and, you yeah, know, loved playing Calcutta. Yeah, it was just amazing to to win the tournament. In fact, the game against Vichy was, I mean, it wasn't a bad game. It was okay. But actually, the game that um, really stands out in my mind was the game in penultimate round. I was playing against Jan Elvest, who was uh, well, a Soviet player. I'd actually played against him in, in, junior, in a junior tournament uh, a few years before. So it was funny encountering him again after all these years. I mean, now I lives in the States, I think. I'm, I'm not sure whether he still is in the States. I think he does. Uh, but Elvest, you know, he was, he'd been, uh, he played in the candidates. Uh, so, you know, strong grandmaster wow. at that time. Yeah. And we had the maddest game in the penultimate round. And yeah, all the pieces were flying over the place. Mad time scramble. Um, <laughs> and I managed to, to uh, yeah, the game, yeah, very explosive, but it ended ended in a draw finally. Oh, okay. So yeah. that that one really stands out for me actually because that was he really went for me. He played a, a pawn sacrifice in the opening, um, and he almost got me, but I pulled it out, and um, yeah, I almost got him as well. I mean, it was great. It was a fantastic game. <laughs> so that that one really stands out for me. Yeah, even though it was a draw, do you feel pretty yeah. good about that game? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. That game really stands out for me because he really went for me. And I think when that happens, it, you know, it was a proper test. And I, I came through and against a very, at that time, a very, very strong player. So, yeah, it really, yeah, that, that, that sticks in the memory. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Uh, well, in the in the one against Vichy, that's pretty amazing too. That one too, yeah, yeah absolutely on on yeah. the turf, and yeah, Vichy, um, yeah, well, you know, a very gracious player as well. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'd like to transition from talking about your competitive career to that period where you became a commentator. How did that come about? How did you go from you know doing all these tournaments and competing to now commentating? Um, I think at a certain point, I started to feel a little bit rootless, actually. I, f- I could, it was, you know, I'd spent basically a decade doing a lot of traveling and I absolutely loved it. 
loved the, the whole adventure. You know, it was very adventurous, all kinds of stuff going on. And it was great. But actually, after a bit, I sort of felt, okay, where, where am I actually living at the moment? And I thought, <laughs> okay, I need a change of direction. So at that point, in fact, round about 92, strangely enough, even though I'd had a huge success in Calcutta, I was already looking for ways to sort of just move gently um, from being a professional player into something else. So I'd, I've always been interested in journalism. So I started writing and uh, an opportunity came up to do some punditry, some commentary on TV for the BBC, um, which was, I mean, that was a big deal. You know, BBC yeah. still has a fantastic reputation. Um, so I took it and it seemed to go very well. It was live, live TV, never done that before. Um, but I found that I really enjoyed it. I loved being put on the spot. Um, <laughs> and from there, I got more invitations to do that. And then in 1993, there was this World Championship match in London, Kasparov against Short. And, of course, that was a, a, a big deal here when you have, you know, the Brit uh, playing for the world title. So, you know, there was an enormous amount of TV coverage. I mean, it's hard to imagine now with everything online. But then, um, you know, there were TV programs on UK TV uh, like four four nights a week. So I became one of the main commentators uh, for that uh, on um, not for actually not for the BBC but for Channel Four. Uh, they they did the main coverage uh, on uh, UK TV, mm-hmm. um, and again that went really really well. So that just led to all kinds of opportunities. Actually, even doing stuff you know presenting you know outside of chess um, because I found that I could you know stare into a camera and say hi there, <laughs> and, uh, and, right. and somehow get away with it. And I enjoyed it. But more than that, actually, uh, I loved um, program making, actually. So I, I you know, the, the producers and directors could see I was really interested. So I ended up, uh, you know, writing scripts, helping with editing. Um, and from that, you know, got into program making, actually. So, you know, there were programs when I was, uh, well, how can I put it? Assistant producer, okay, um, for chess programs and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, it, it just spun off into all kinds of different directions. I even even helped edit um, a country music documentary wow. <laughs> that went out on country music TV in the states. There we go. That's a, a, a weird spin off, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, That's fun. Yeah, it's, it sent me all into all kinds of directions. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. You did a lot as a TV commentator, including several world championships that you commentated for. That seems really significant to me. Was was there a moment or a highlight from any of them that stands out to you to this day? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I've always loved the whole idea of world championship matches. I mean, probably because that's where I started with the Fischer-Spassky-Reykjavik match. You know, that was mm. the first match that I was aware of uh, and first match where I understood, okay, chess is, is more than just playing in the local community hall. This chess is bigger than that. Chess is worldwide. It matters. So I've always loved world championship matches. Um, and I've been lucky enough to work 
on TV, but or, or as a commentator, or found some kind of job reporting on World Championship matches. <laughs> um, so, golly, highlights. Um, 95, commentating at the World Trade Center, again with Maurice. Um, we were co-commentators live there um, and making TV programs, and that was just an extraordinary atmosphere playing at the top of the World Trade Center. I mean, it's hard to imagine now, you know, after 9-11, my goodness. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I loved being in New York. New York was so exciting. Loved working there. Um, so that was a real highlight. And, you know, being very much in the thick of it, seeing Kasparov storming around, you know, if things didn't go his way <laughs> and slamming doors. And Fishy <laughs> being very gentlemanly. And um, yeah, that so that was a real highlight. Um, then in 2000, when the World Championship match between Kasparov and Kramnik was in London, so I was, you know, one of the main commentators there, and also you know making TV programs too. Uh, that was just a great experience again to be there and to be you know very much part of it and and seeing you know the players sometimes backstage and sometimes interviews away from uh, away from uh, the, the games themselves as well. Um, so, you know, I always uh, got on well with, with, uh, with Gary Kasparov. Um, and it's just interesting to see top players um, in action and, you know, hearing what they have to say. And, and Gary is a, uh, you know, a, a compelling character. Um, <laughs> right. You know, he's sometimes in a fantastic mood, sometimes in, in a very black mood, but, you know, he's always an interesting person and personality. So, you know, I really enjoyed that. And there's one game which sticks in my mind from that match was, oh, no, golly, was it game four or five? Where Kasparov played a Queen's Gambit Accepted and Kramnik, basically Kramnik kind of calmed things down in the match. You know, that was the notorious match where he played the Berlin okay. and frustrated Kasparov. Yeah. And as White, Kramnik went into an end game very quickly in this Queen's Gambit exchange for uh, Queen's Gambit accepted. And he slowly outplayed Kasparov. It was brilliant. And you could see Kasparov just getting more and more frustrated because he couldn't get the kind of position that he liked to play on the board. Mm -hmm. Kramnik showed incredible confidence in outplaying Kasparov. But somehow in this game, Kasparov, from desperate position in this endgame, he clung on. He even lost a piece. But he managed to hold the game. And that was incredible. That's when I thought, that's when I, I mean, I, you know, Kasparov always is just an incredible player, but that's when I thought, wow, he is something else. He held an endgame a piece down and it mm -hmm. finally ended in Rook and Knight against Rook. And well, that's not such a difficult endgame to hold, but actually before then it was Rook, Knight and Pawn against Rook and Kasparov mm -hmm. held it. It was sensational. And this game went, I don't know, seven hours maybe? the audience was enthralled. You know, a live audience there, they couldn't believe what they were watching. You know, there was 
think pretty much a standing I, I think a standing ovation at the end of it because Kasparov's defensive um, effort mm-hmm. was just heroic <laughs> but he, wow. did, he still couldn't couldn't turn the match around that's incredible though to uh, to witness that live yeah it really was extraordinary yeah. you know yeah. one of those games where you think okay this is proper classical chess you know mm-hmm. Rapid chess was starting to come to the fore. Well, after those, you know, Intel Rapid events in the mid-90s, that was one of the first times when Rapid chess was really promoted heavily. But that's when you realize, when you see games like that, which last seven hours or so, Mm -hmm. classical chess, you cannot beat it. Yeah, that's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Uh, Daniel, just to kind of bridge the gap between... um, your commentating period, you know, on live television and those instances that we just talked about to now uh, with your power play YouTube channel where you Mm. do commentary on top events to kind of bridge the two. I'm curious, uh, what is it like for you commentating on your YouTube channel versus the experience, uh, you know, that you had, say, in the 90s and live television? You know, is it easier? What are some of like the benefits or drawbacks versus uh, between the two? It's it, it's just different. It's not easier <laughs> yeah. or harder. There, are, you know, live TV has its own pressures. Of course, you know, you have to remember to brush your hair and you know look respectable. <laughs> you can get away with more when you're you know I'm sitting in my office and um, um, but actually I always think of my YouTube channel as I mean it's partly entertainment, it's partly instruction, but it's also journalism. You know, basically, I've been a journalist for many years reporting on events, whether it's on TV or, you know, writing reports for magazines uh, and newspapers. Uh, And I think of a lot of my YouTube channel as journalism, actually. You know, for example, we've just had Norway Chess. Yeah. um, Which I thought was a fabulous event. And, you know, classical chess. I know there's a there's a a blitz element to to it as well. (laughs) But, you know, I I think it's a very novel formats very interesting um but i was basically uh reporting on events and giving a game of the day and and you know i really enjoy that actually yeah um, it's a it's a bit like it's a sports program basically so you know here in in the uk uh we have uh, match of the day which is it's a football, sorry, soccer program <laughs> that's been going for years and years. And uh, match of the day is where, you know, every Saturday night, it's just an institution. You know, they show you the, the, the best games of in, in the top league. Um, and, you know, I love that. So basically I'm doing match of the day. And, and that's how I think of it. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm reliving a game and giving you the best shots and saying, you know, why this is important why is it significant theoretically for the opening you know what's going on in the tournament uh, i'm talking about the players personalities how that comes out in the game it's journalism basically and i really enjoy that you know it's basically it's telling a story yeah yeah absolutely so kind of going out to the origin of your youtube channel mm. um when did you launch it and what inspired you to create it oh golly i I haven't checked up. I think it was in 2012. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it was because I think it started because of the world championship match um, and end against Gelfand. I could, I could have got that completely wrong. And that was in Moscow. 
Um, and I wasn't going to go to Moscow then uh, because, you know, my days of sort of traveling around kind of calmed down a bit because, you know, I got married and have, you know, got kids basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, well, you know, I still want to be involved. I want to report on it. So I thought, okay, I can, yeah, why not do it from, do it from home and you know, just see what interest there is. Um, so that was partly it. Uh, you know, I was interested and thought, yeah, why not? Um, and also I had, I'd started doing a series of DVDs. That's very old school. And they're now download. <laughs> chess yeah. base. And I thought it was a good way of promoting those, those products as well. So it, it, uh, so it was partly kind of to amuse myself, you know, because <laughs> I'm following these games anyway in these top events. And I, I, you know, still find it fascinating following what people are doing um, and partly to, you know, prom- promote my own material. Sure, sure. So yeah, your channel is you know largely commentary on these top events, but you also have some educational videos, instructional videos as well. Um, how do you choose what kind of educational content you want to cover? Again, it's all a bit random. <laughs> like, <laughs> like a lot of my career and a lot of my life, um, I look at stuff that interests me, and I hope that it's going to interest other people. So, for example, you know, I've had a little. Now and again, I dip in and look at King's Gambits because I've always enjoyed looking at King's Gambit games. <laughs> right. um, yeah, really, it's that basic. Um, but for the educational stuff, well, I would say that all my videos are educational. Right. You know, yeah. I always try to point out something that is of interest that people can learn from. Um, it might be a bit random, um, but... I think they're all instructive in in some way or another. I just think looking at games by top players, you've got to learn from the best. And I think, you know, we really can learn from them, um, from from all these games. Um, But sometimes I'll have a series on, you know, let's say I'll look at, um, I don't know, a particular opening. Um, So, yeah, I mean... uh, Recently, you know, I've done these courses for Chessable on the Kalashnikov and on the Anti-Sicilians for Black. So, you know, I might have a series of games where I'm kind of doing updates on from my course and looking at games with the Kalashnikov or Anti-Sicilians, um, that kind of thing. So that's how I choose it. It's a bit random. <laughs> <laughs> when you create your videos do you envision a a particular skill level of your audience do you try to keep it pretty broad how do you approach it from that perspective i try to keep it pretty broad actually Mm -hmm. um but i kind of build up so for example recently i've because hikaru played um four night g5 um, against uh, Fabiano in the last round of Norway chess. Yeah. So that sparked a little series. So I looked at uh, a game between Fisher and Bisgaya that Fisher had annotated in my 60 memorable games. So it started from the Nakamura Karawana game. So I talked a little bit about the opening then. Then I hopped to Fisher Bisguy and I gave more instruction. 
And actually, I've just recorded a couple more with the same opening because people were interested in the fried liver attack. And so um, I've gone on from there. So I kind of build up, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did notice that. I noticed that that uh, that game inspired some more videos on that subject, which I thought was great. Yeah, and, and but also um, I like to point people um, into in the direction of my Patreon channel as well. So Patreon forward slash Powerplay Chess. And there I go into a deeper level. So I'm going to be looking at the fried liver and related variations um, for in an opening survey for, well, a certain level of Patreon subscribers. So, the, yeah, if people want more depth and more detail, then I often provide it on my Patreon channel. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I love that. And um, we'll have a link for people listening for that Patreon um, subscription uh, in the show notes to this episode so they can check that out. Daniel, uh, you know, you're you're the author of over 15 chess books, which is incredible. It's one of the reasons I said the word amazing about your career of uh, over 15 chess books. You know, one of your most popular book titles, How Good Is Your Chess, was also made into a chessable course a few years ago. I'd just like to start with discussing this course because... Um, it strikes me as different, you know, uh, and less common than a lot of the you know openings courses that you see on Chessable. So, can you tell people who aren't familiar with it what the premise is for how good is your chess? I I give um, a top level game, and then uh, viewers have to. I was going to say guess the moves of, <laughs> of the game, but guess is not right. Um, try to calculate try to work out what the best move is in the position. And then they're given feedback according to you know, which move they make. This is something that I grew up doing myself. So there was a ma- there's a magazine um, in, in the UK, chess magazine, that always had this how good is your chess article. And you went through the game and it gave you points according to you know, which move you picked. And, well, quite a few years ago, I started writing this column for Chess Magazine. A long time ago, this, in fact, this is when I wanted to sort of just steer away from being a professional player. And I started writing this column, How Good Is Your Chess? And I'm still writing it. So once a month, I write this, uh, I write up a game and it gets published in the magazine. It also gets published in Germany as well. It's very, very popular there too. Um, and so the chessable course is very, very similar. Uh, I think looking at top players' games is really valuable. You have to have a blueprint, uh, a, a, an overall strategy to follow if, if you, when, when you start playing a game. Now, listen, we can't repeat games. It very, very rarely happens. But it's always frustrating me with opening books that, you know, they'll get to move 14 or 15 and stop and say, slight advantage to white. Mm -hmm. How does that help us? (laughs) So, you know, when I write an opening book or I do one of my chessable courses, what I do is I pick model games 
And this has always helped me when I was learning opening theory. I never played an opening just by looking at variations. I mm. started playing openings because I saw and was inspired by a fantastic game. So I used to see Sveshnikov playing an unbelievable game with black and thought, wow, that's an amazing strategy. I could do that <laughs> in my yeah. dreams. Um, and that's how I started playing the Sveshnikov. I didn't play the Sveshnikov because I saw a variation up to move 12 going slight advantage, unclear. Right. <laughs> that didn't we inspire you, huh? <laughs> Strangely, no. Yeah. <laughs> but I was inspired by the games of Sveshnikov and Timoshenko and other, other Soviet players at that time. So for my chessboard courses, for example, on the Kalashnikov, on the anti-Sicilians, I always have a model games chapter where I pick out something like 20 games and say, okay, here's what we're aiming for. On a good day, this can happen. This is why I'm playing the, this variation. And then afterwards, you fill in the details. That's the way around to do it. You don't start from the variations. I want to be inspired when I play an opening. I want to know, yeah, I'm heading for an IQP position because with an IQP position, I can get the initiative. I could put my knight on the outpost and I got my bishop pointing down at h2. Wow, this can be fun. Yeah. And then you fill in the details. I think that's incredibly important. So that's the idea with how good is your chess. In a sense, these are model games. And actually, what takes an enormous amount of time in preparation for these courses and for I've done two how good is your chess courses is selecting games which are really suitable. Mm. So, you know, one player's got to play very, very well. There can't be too many blunders. Um, and somehow they've got to, they've got to demonstrate a typical strategy. And very often you get a big mismatch in ratings for a game to run so smoothly. But actually these kind of games are really instructive. Interesting. Yeah. So that's the premise. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. I love it. And actually your discussion on openings, I think is, is a, is a good lead into the next question I had for you, which is on your Kalashnikov Sicilian course, um, which is on chessable. Yeah. Um, I, so I know a lot of club players are eager to choose the Sicilian opening. And I was too, when I, when I was uh, about a year ago now, I guess when I decided to play the Sicilian, but they don't know how to pick a particular Sicilian opening. They don't know what criteria to select from or necessarily what the advantages of one versus the other is. So what are some reasons for going with the Kalashnikov Sicilian? I often recommend the Kalashnikov to, well, improvers, to my students, uh, because you get the variation in very easily. Once white goes for an open Sicilian, you're in there because you get in e5. And actually, the structure is more or less fixed. You know, with other variations of Sicilian, let's say the Nidorf, well, do you play your pawn to e6 or e5? Or not at all? Do you go g6? Or do you just play knight c6? With a Kalashnikov, the structure is fixed. You have a pawn on e5, and the pawn normally goes to d6. 
When you have a fixed structure, then that will determine where your pieces go. It's much easier to determine where your pieces go, and therefore it's easier to determine strategy. So from that viewpoint, I think it's a good choice. And I speak from experience because this was the opening that my first coach, Nigel Cover, recommended to me. And I think it's a really good recommendation. Now, I play it in a slightly different way to, um, you know, way back then. But actually, this opening, basically, it, all, all my openings with, with Black against E4 have been based on, on the Kalashnikov. Because I played that for a few years. Then I moved to the Sveshnikov related structure with E5 and D6. And then I moved to the Nidorf. Again, there could be a related structure. Well, as my understanding of chess improved, I could get away with more complex openings. And that's why I, I moved on to the Sveshnikov and then finally the Nidorf. However, as a starter, I think the Kalashnikov is excellent because it's because of that rigid structure. And I think that is really beneficial. And what's interesting is that over the past, well, 10, 15, 20 years, in fact, it's had an, a new lease of life. Um, you know, more, I think strategy has developed with black. And, you know, you find players like Nakamura have played it, Carlson. Um, well, there are other players that specialize in it, like uh, Rajabov, um, Maksud Lu, the, the young Iranian player, for example. Um, so it is really developed as well. And, you know, it's sound. <laughs> that's that's yeah. the great thing about it as well. But it's that fixed pawn structure. That's really mm. the thing that helps a player who wants to get a handle on an opening. If there are too many different structures, then strategy becomes very confusing and very complex. With the Kalashnikov, it's a bit simpler. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, the simplified, or at least a bit more simplified approach and, and structure uh, makes a lot of sense. I wish I had known that when I was uh, choosing <laughs> different Sicilian options. Um, but uh, that, yeah, that makes a, a lot of sense. And uh, I love that. So onto another course that uh, you recently created, Daniel, was um, the Anti-Sicilians for Black, your most yeah. recent course on Chessable. Again, speaking as a Sicilian player myself now, I, I always get, and I think this is perhaps a, a not an atypical reaction, uh, mm. I, I get disappointed when <laughs> my opponent dodges the open yeah. Sicilian uh, and plays one of the anti-Sicilians. So just on this subject, how can Sicilian players still be excited or have some enthusiasm uh, when playing against an anti-Sicilian? And, and does your course help with that at all? It was quite funny because as soon as practically as soon as the Kalashnikov was released, um, <laughs> those kind of comments <laughs> came thick and far. <laughs> hey, I love playing the Kalashnikov. This is a great course. Um, the problem is, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> when yeah. do I get it? Because there are so many anti-Sicilians played against me. Right. So that was a cry from the start. Um, so that's why the anti-Sicilian course came about. Do you know what I've? I mean, you know, having played the Sicilian for most of my life, then these kind of anti-Sicilian positions for black feel very natural to me. And I'm not disappointed because I always feel when my opponent plays an anti-Sicilian, you know, whether it's the Alapin or the Grand Prix attack or the Rossellim or whatever, 
they've bottled it, as we as we say in London. Mm. They've chickened out. Yeah, they're not prepared to take me on, and I th- already I think I've won the psychological battle. Ha! Mm. <laughs> You're not prepared to take on my main weapon, chicken. <laughs> they've bottled it, as we say here. Um, so that's that's for starters. But also, I think a lot of these systems. They're not that great for white. Now, okay, this is, you know, I'm saying this having had years of playing um, the black side of this. So, for example, the Grand Prix attack, which is, you know, born and practically born and bred in England. Mm -hmm. This is just good fun for black. (laughs) I mean, really, it's just, you know, once the F-pawn advances, then I just kind of think with black, here we go. (laughs) Yeah. Got him. And yeah, sure enough, between moves 25 and 30, their king side falls apart. Um, you know, playing against the Alapin. Well, you know, I'm really comfortable with the system I recommend with E6 and going for an isolated queen's pawn position. I've had such enormous mm. success with that because suddenly black is able to take the initiative. Um, against the Ross Limo, it's an opening that I played a great deal with white, actually. So I know what... Uh, always upset me when I was playing with white. So you know, my recommendation is three knight f6, which cuts across white's plans, actually. And I played played that a great deal with black. And I just think it's an interesting position. You know, I, I never think that, well, white has an advantage. It's just a dynamic position. It's just, yeah, just an interesting position um, with chances for both sides. Um, so... Yeah, I have a very different attitude towards those anti-Sicilians, actually. I normally <laughs> think, great, <laughs> game on, you know, because I, I just don't think black is worse. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to start adopting that uh, that attitude. That, that'll definitely help. Daniel, uh, you know, there's there's so much of your uh, of stuff that you've created already that we could talk about, and I'd love to um, just to just to keep this moving along. Um, let's talk about what's next for you. I know you have a new book on the horizon. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, having brought out a, a book on the Kalashnikov after the course, then <laughs> um, I'm uh, starting to write the book version of the Antisilians. But that's going to take me some time because okay. it's um, yeah, it, it's it's a very different format writing um, uh, a book form. And the other thing is, I've just had this published actually: uh, How to Win at Chess, published by Pan Macmillan. So they're a, you know very big publisher or, you know, worldwide. Um, it's beginner's book, basically. You can see lots of lots of glossy stuff here. Um, so that's out in the States. And there's going to be a softback edition of that coming out in, in the fall, as you guys say. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's nice. Um, that's already out. That came out in February. Yeah, yeah, so, that's awesome. Yeah, and in fact, I'm... I've just got to tweak a couple of things for for the US edition, but it's already out in in the US. Okay, uh, but yeah, the softback is is going to be out, um, and there's nice bits of about chess culture in it as well. So you know, I talk about the world championship matches and the personalities and and streamers and you know what's happening in online chess and that kind of thing. So it's it's basically an introduction to chess for beginners from first moves to checkmate. It's how to win at chess from first moves to checkmate. That's awesome. That's great. I love it. Um, Daniel, I know on your YouTube channel in the past, you did um, a segment that you had 
at um, several times called uh, 99 questions. Uh, 99 seconds. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 99 seconds. Yeah, I'm sorry. I meant to say that. That would be a completely different segment, right? 99 questions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 99 seconds. I apologize. And I actually, uh, I've watched uh, a lot of them and I love them. They're fantastic. So I thought we'd finish this interview by doing a little bit of a a segment like that, where we just do uh, some quick, easy questions for you. um, Since I don't think you've been uh, on the receiving end of of those questions yourself uh yeah no it's funny I, I you know we started those 99 second interviews just as a bit of a laugh and and somehow we never pursued them um <laughs> I, I didn't know how popular they were we we somehow canned it i don't know anyway maybe maybe i should revive it I'm not sure yeah they're, they're, questions. They're, <laughs> they show up as um, amongst your most popular, um, most viewed. Uh, oh, really? Do yeah, they? I didn't yeah. even know that. There you go. It just shows how random we are with this <laughs> YouTube channel. You know, the problem is I'm kind of juggling 12 different things, you know, whether it's tuition or writing, YouTube commentary. Uh, <laughs> You're right. And, uh, yeah. There you go. I'm just not very professional, am I? <laughs> no, no, no. Things fall, through, things fall through the cracks. Anyway, listen, fire away. Give me a question. Yeah, yeah. We won't do like a full thing like you do, but we'll do some of it. So okay. favorite chess game you've played? Oh, golly. Again, I'm not looking – I'm not very good at looking back. Um, <laughs> okay, one that stands out. Uh, yeah. A game I played against Andrei Sokolov. So – yeah, Soviet player, but now lives in France. And this was played in the Swiss League. I was playing for a Swiss team then. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a complicated game, ended up in a queen and pawn end game where my king marched up the board. I was white, and it marched from G1, and it reached G8. Wow. <laughs> and I'm really proud of that game and ended in a beautiful Tsuxfang. And in fact, it was used in a novel called Zugzwang. Huh. Um, Interesting. By a chap that I was, a chap called Ronan Bennett. Zugzwang by Ronan Bennett. There you are. <laughs> That's amazing. It made it into a, a book. That's incredible. It's kind of a, um, yeah, a thriller. A thriller. Right. Um, favorite player of all time? Oh, that's too difficult. Um, a favorite player. <laughs> a favorite player. Korsnoy. I th- yeah. You know, I always, you know, I had, Chance to play against Korchnoi and always been a bit of a hero. Um, Fisher and Spassky, just because that's how I, where I started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Favorite opening as white? Spanish. Favorite opening as black? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of equal first. Um... You know, I love the Nidorf, I love the Kalashnikov, I love the Sveshnikov. It's going to be one of those, basically. Okay, yeah. Uh, question I heard you ask someone, rock music or classical music? I grew up listening to both. <laughs> <laughs> love, love both, you know. Uh, love Jimi Hendrix. Mm-hmm. Uh, love the Stones. Um, but yeah, I love Bach. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. sorry no, <laughs> you, can't, <it's> hard. <laughs> you can't, can't do that to me <laughs> <laughs> and final question and this is one of my own that i ask a lot of my guests if you had to choose a career other than chess what would it be musician 
There we go. I can give you a definitive answer. That one you got that. Yeah. 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 Sorry. I'm hedging on lots of the others, but musician. Although the genre might be a little hard to choose, right? Sounds like. Why do you need to choose? That's a great, great (laughs) response. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's the beauty about music. Yeah. Love it. Right. Uh, Daniel, it's been um, a fantastic uh, time talking to you. I really enjoyed it a lot. I think everyone listening will as well. And just want to say thank you very much for your time and um, everything that you had to share. It was all fantastic. Thanks. Very kind. Thank you very much. It feels, it feels very self-indulgent. I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not used to talking about myself, actually. Um, you know, I'm, uh, normally I'm reporting on other people. Right. So this is, this is an unusual occurrence. But anyway, I, and thank you for asking me. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, it was my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, thank you so much again. And um, yeah, you know, we'll leave links for all of your content, your books and things like that for people to check out in the show notes. And I just want to say thank you again. And I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of my business, Adult Chess Academy. And that has a website with the same name if you want to look for it. You can also find me being way too active on Twitter by searching my username, Lona underscore chess. See you next week.